hello. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Hope uh, everyone's having a good weekend so far. Um, I want to say good morning and hello to those of you who are watching online as well. Glad you can join us here today. Um, as Alex said, we are going to keep going here in our series called The Grounded Life through the book of Proverbs. Um, but before we look at our passage this morning, I want us just to take a minute and to think about this idea of warnings and warning signs. Um, you know, we live in an interesting day and age uh, where uh, warnings and warning labels and warning signs are, are literally on everything. And the reason for that is because everyone is so afraid of being sued or having a lawsuit brought against them that we've literally started putting them on everything, even on things where just even just a little common sense would make it obvious. Um, for example, I came across a couple this week that I thought were interesting. Here's one on a package of peanuts. Um, ingredients, 100% peanuts. Uh, allergy advice, which is interesting that it's advice, like, you know, take it or leave it. It's, um, contains peanuts. Not suitable for nut and sesame allergies. Sufferers due to the methods used in the manufacture of this product. So I thought it would be because of the ingredients of the product, not in the manufacturer. But um, anyway, there's one. Uh, here's another one that's just, again, common sense. Uh, chainsaw, danger. Do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, an, another one uh, is a letter opener. Now, you might not be able to read that. So let me, it says, caution. Blades are extremely sharp. All right, that's good. Um, safety goggles recommended. And then keep out of reach of children. Like they, two of the three, like I'm with you, right? Like that, that's good. Blades are sharp, keep out of reach of children. But safety goggles, like I, to me, that was like a specific lawsuit. Like they got sued because someone, a piece of paper flew up and gave someone a paper cut in the eye and now they have safety goggles. All right, one last one here that's just completely ridiculous. Uh, touching wire causes death, instant death, $200 fine. Now, you would think that like death alone would be enough of a penalty, but they want your money as well, just to, just to really punish you. All right, now I know we're making fun of those, and uh, certainly some warning signs are annoying and ridiculous, and it's obvious that, you know, they're just trying not to get sued. But definitely there are other warning signs and warning labels that are really, really important and beneficial. Um, you know, at the end of last summer, my family and I, we uh, were able to go on vacation and we went down to Florida. And originally, when we had planned this before COVID, we were going to do one day at Disney World. But because of COVID, we were like, we're, we're not doing that anymore. And um, they had all kinds of restrictions. And so we were trying to think of something fun we could do instead as sort of a special part of this vacation. And our oldest daughter, Miriam, loves animals, uh, just like loves, loves, loves animals. And so as we were talking about stuff, she's like, I just really want to see a dolphin in the wild. And as a dad, when your kid has like requests like that, you're like, I don't, what do I do with that? Like, I can't just make dolphins like appear out of the water, you know? Um, but I started doing a little bit of research and I found out through a couple of blogs and articles that the part of Florida that we were going to be in, the best way to see a dolphin in the wild was to go uh, rent a boat or go on a boat ride down the Halifax River, um, which is a part of the intracoastal waterway, which runs all along the Atlantic coast. And so we booked a, a boat ride. Uh, we drove just south of Daytona. And sure enough, we, we got on a boat and we saw some dolphins. And it was really, really cool. Um, but while on the boat ride, we also saw this awesome lighthouse called the Ponce Inlet Lighthouse. 
And we were talking to our boat captain about it, and he was telling us a little bit about the history of it and also just about the area in general. And because it was so cool, we decided to come back and visit on a different day. And so like a day or two later, we drove back down because again, this was about 30 minutes from where we were staying. And we toured the lighthouse, which again was awesome. If you ever have a chance, um, it's the largest lighthouse in Florida. Um, but then we decided to go to one of the beaches nearby. Now we didn't know much about the beaches in the area, but we ended up at this one beach with a long pier or jetty type thing coming out of it. And so we're on the pier and there's dozens and dozens of surfers out that day. And uh, part of that was because it was at the peak of hurricane season. Again, this is like mid-September. And so we're, we're on this pier, we're watching people surf and some ladies next to us are like, do you see the sharks out there? And we're like, what do you mean? What do you, no, I don't see any sharks. They're like, yeah, like there's sharks all over the place out there. And they even went on to tell us that someone that day, one of the surfers got attacked and bitten by a shark. And so we kept looking and sure enough, eventually we saw sharks swimming all around these surfers. And it was crazy because they really didn't seem to care, the, the surfers that is. Um, we found out later that the area where we were at, uh, these sort of beaches along this area are known as the shark attack capital of the world. And because of that, there's actually warning signs like this on the beach that say, warning, dangerous marine life has been spotted in this area. Now that's a really helpful warning sign compared to some of the other ones we looked at. You see, I know that because of some of the things we looked at earlier, many of us are tired and annoyed by warning labels and warning signs. But in the Bible, we actually see that warnings are an expression of God's love. You see, unlike the world, God doesn't warn us or issue warnings because he's worried about a lawsuit or being sued. No, he issues warnings because he loves us and because he knows what is best for us and he knows the dangers that lie ahead. And in our passage today, Solomon is gonna lay out three different warning signs. And the thing about them is that they're very, very practical and helpful. In fact, if you have an ESV Bible in front of you, the title of this section is called Practical Warnings. Um, the NIV says, Warnings Against Folly. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Proverbs chapter six. Uh, we'll be looking at verses one to 19. And once you find it, go ahead and stand as I read today's passage again. Proverbs 6, verses 1 to 19. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said and snared by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, to free yourself, since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. A troublemaker and a villain, who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart, who always stirs up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will be suddenly destroyed without remedy. 
There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning. And God, we open your word and we, at the same time, Lord, our desire is to open our hearts to you. And Father, we ask that through your word, you would pierce our hearts. God, you would cut away any of the, the, the dross, Lord, any of the parts of us that are unpleasing. And you would shape us and mold us more into the image of your son. And so we ask that you would do that today by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can go ahead and be seated. Um, our outline this morning will be again focused around these ideas of warnings. And first we'll look at warnings on wealth in verses 1 to 5. And then we'll look at warnings on work in verses 6 to 11. And then finally we'll look at warnings on wickedness in verses 12 to 19. And so starting with warnings on work, let's look again here at verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have shaken hands in a pledge for a stranger, you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, to free yourself since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go to the point of exhaustion and give your neighbor no rest. Allow no sleep to your eyes, no slumber to your eyelids. Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter, like a bird from the snare of a fowler. Okay, so what exactly is this referring to? Well, scholars aren't totally sure of the exact practice that's being described here in terms of ancient Israel, but what it sounds like is something similar to what we call co-signing for a loan. Again, we see here it's talking about putting up security or as the New American Standard says, becoming surety for a neighbor. Again, the idea is basically that you are guaranteeing someone else's debt. You're saying that if they don't pay, then I am liable. I am now responsible for it. And what Solomon is telling his son here and even warning him here is, son, don't do this. Don't enter into this kind of relationship with someone else. You see, the reason that this is an issue is because, as one commentator said, God wants every one of us to, be, uh, to take responsibility for himself. But if you put your financial future in the hands of someone the bank already thinks is a bad risk, you are acting irresponsible yourself and you're encouraging irresponsibility in the other person. I mean, the reality is, is that most of the time, unless a person just has no credit at all, the reason that you would need a co-signer is because you've proven yourself to be untrustworthy or irresponsible with money. And look, here's the thing. In America, you have to have some pretty bad credit in order for a bank to not loan you some money. I mean, to me, it seems that most banks, uh, their baseline for handing out money is pretty low. And so if they don't trust you for a car loan, you've probably been irresponsible in the past. Um, even the uh, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, they warn you against this practice on their website. Uh, in fact, they issue this warning. You are being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. If the borrower does not pay the debt, you will have to. Be sure that you can afford to pay it if you have to and that you want to accept this responsibility. 
You may have to pay up to the full amount of the debt if the borrower does not pay. You may also have to pay late fees or collection costs, which increase this amount. The creditor can collect this debt from you without first trying to collect it from the borrower. The creditor can also use the same collection methods against you that they can against the borrower, such as suing you, garnishing your wages, etc. If this debt is ever in default, you may, uh, that fact may become a part of your credit history. Again, this is a big deal. This is risky. It's unwise. Now, personally, I, I, I don't think that this means that you might never co-sign for someone. But I do think that it means that if you do, there's a couple of things that you should think through. For one, you should probably find out why does the person need a cosigner in the first place? Is it because uh, that they have no credit, right? Like maybe a, a, a young adult child who has just no credit yet or something like that, or is it because they have bad credit, right? Like there's a big difference between those two realities. As well, if it, if it is in fact because they have bad credit, you may want to find out why, uh, what led to that. And then discern if the person has made some changes, if they have matured, if they've learned from their mistakes. You may also want to find out, are they working? Like, are they, do they have a steady income? Like, that's an important part of this. As well, if you end up doing it, you should probably only do it if you can actually afford to pay the debt without totally ruining yourself financially. In other words, you probably shouldn't do this if it's going to totally ruin you if the person defaults. Um, commentator Derek Kidner, he said this of the passage, it does not banish generosity. It is nearer to banishing gambling. That is, a man's giving should be fully voluntary, its amount determined by him, for then its effectiveness can be judged and competing claims on him assessed and not wrung from him by events outside of his control. Now, not only that though, some have also, uh, in looking at this passage, have suggested that when it talks about shaking hands in a pledge with a stranger, that it could be referring to uh, entering into some sort of shaky business venture. You know, something like where you might gamble your entire life savings on a business deal or on a sure thing in the market or something like that. I was actually talking with a friend about this just a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me about his dad, who uh, is a pretty successful business guy. He owns his own healthcare business and has done really, really well through the years. Um, but quite a few years ago, his dad and two other guys started a car dealership together. And things were going okay for a while, but then 2008 hit. And, you know, as you remember, banks freaked out because of what was happening in the stock and housing markets. And so they started calling in their debts. And so here you have a car dealership that not only has its own debt, but you also have a lot of people during that time defaulting on their car loans. And so because of this, things got really, really bad for them. But the real kicker was, uh, out of the three partners who owned the dealership, only his dad had any real assets and resources that the banks could go after. And so it was this super, super stressful time on their family. Like they literally could have lost everything, including their house. Now I'm not saying that, I don't, I don't think Proverbs is saying here that starting a business or taking some risk financially is unwise. But I think that when it comes to yoking yourself financially with others, especially when we might become liable for their debt, the Proverbs is saying, don't do that. Be careful with that. 
And actually this specific section is addressing if you've already done it, like you're already in the mess. You've already gone down this road. What the text is telling you to do is to do whatever it takes to free yourself. In fact, when you look at the passage, it has a strong sense of urgency, a strong sense of seriousness to it. Again, it uses language like go to the point of exhaustion, allow no sleep to your eyes, free yourself like a gazelle from a hunter. And really this topic is something that Proverbs addresses over and over again. And there's this one uh, particular verse that I really love because of how vivid it is in painting the consequences of what will happen in this type of action. And it's Proverbs 22:26, which says this, Do not be one who shakes hands in a pledge or puts up security for debt. If you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. I don't know about you, I like my bed. I don't want it snatched from underneath me. I mean, I, I've slept on the floor before. It's not a good fit for me. We just, my body does not agree with that. And so uh, again, this is a warning here, a warning on wealth. Let's go to the next section here, which is a warning on work. Pick it up in verse six. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores up provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. Okay, so we see Solomon here move on from, uh, or he moves on to how to handle money, uh, from how to handle money to how to discipline ourselves. And in doing so, he sets up a comparison between an ant and a sluggard. Now, this word sluggard and the type of person that it's describing is very important to the book of Proverbs. In fact, this word sluggard is only used in the book of Proverbs, but it's used 14 times. And so again, for Solomon, this is an important personification of a type of person that you and I are to avoid becoming. And so to better understand who and what a sluggard is, let me share with you some of the other Proverbs which describe this type of person. Proverbs 10, 26 says, As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so are sluggards to those who send them. You know, during COVID, I've been building a lot of bonfires in the backyard because it's like, what else can you do? And I got a bunch of sticks to burn up. And uh, let me just tell you, smoke in the eyes does not feel good, right? And it's saying here that, that a sluggard sent to someone is like smoke to the eyes. Um, Proverbs 19.24 says, a sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even bring it back to his mouth, right? Like he just reaches in that potato chip bowl and it's like, that's ah, too much effort to, to bring it up. Uh, Proverbs 24 says, Sluggards do not plow in season. So the harvest time they look but find nothing. Very similar to that, Proverbs 21, 25 says, The cravings of a sluggard will be the death of him because his hands refuse to work. Proverbs 26, 13 says, A sluggard says, There's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming in the streets. In other words, a sluggard always has an excuse. There's always some unbelievable reason as to why they can't do this or that. One last one here, Proverbs 26, 14 says, As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns in his bed. Again, on this idea of a sluggard, commentator Derek Kidner is helpful. 
Kidner describes a sluggard in Proverbs as someone who will not begin things, will not finish things, and will not face things. Consequently, a sluggard is restless with unsatisfied desire. I mean, certainly as we look at these Proverbs and, and, and even also Proverbs chapter 6, we see that a core component to a sluggard is laziness. Now, laziness can be a tricky thing. And what I mean by that is that, number one, there are some people that you come across, they might come across as lazy because they have trouble starting things or finishing things, but it's not necessarily because they are actually lazy, but it might have more to do with a disability like ADHD, or maybe it's because of some sort of hang-up with perfectionism or something like that. And so because of this, this they're sort of paralyzed in, in being able to start something or to finish something. And again, it might look like this person is lazy, that they're a bum, but actually there's other things going on. Now, don't get me wrong. You can have ADHD and be lazy, but I'm just saying it's not always the case. The other thing that makes uh, being lazy tricky is that it's possible to be very busy and lazy at the same time. You see, the reality is, is that I think this is something that all of us struggle with to one degree or another. Now, you might not realize it, but that's because you struggle and I struggle with what's called selective laziness. You see, for some of us, we might work really hard at our job, but then we're lazy at home. Or maybe we're crushing it at home, but we're then slacking off at work. Or maybe we're, we're doing great at both of those areas, but we're spiritually lazy. We make excuses. We talk about how busy we are and, oh, I would love to be able to spend more time in prayer and in the word, but I just don't see how I could practically fit it into my schedule. Well, for many of you in that boat, you seem to find a way to fit in that new Netflix series into your schedule or you figure out how to watch that big game every week. You see, we make time for the things that are important to us. The things that are important to us make it into our schedules. You see, like pride, I think laziness is really hard for us to admit. It's hard to admit that it's something that we struggle with. And part of that is because we can always find someone who is lazier than we are. And so because of that, we're always sort of letting ourselves off the hook. It's like, well, you know, I'm not like so-and-so. I mean, they won't even, you know, make their bed or mow their lawn. I think the other reason why it's hard for us to admit it is because we despise people who are lazy. And because that's the case, we just don't picture ourselves as that type of a person. You see, again, for most of us, there's some area in our life, I think anyway, where we struggle with being diligent and being consistent. I heard a story this week of a dad who admitted to taking extra hours and extra responsibility at work simply because the pressures at home were too much for him. You see, the tricky thing about that is that it looks like this dad is working really hard, that he's not lazy, but again, it's selective laziness. Now, one of the things that we see with the sluggard is that this type of behavior often looks like little compromises and it, it happens gradually. Look again at verse 10. This is one of my father-in-law's favorite verses. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Again, we see here that it's, it's, it's just a little of this. It's just a little of that. And yet over time, a little bit adds up to a lot. Again, one commentator said, he does not commit himself to a refusal, but deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. Another one wrote, he is lazy, constantly making the soft choice, 
losing one opportunity after another, after another, day by day, moment by moment, until he lies there helpless in his wasted life. And so again, this happens gradually. It happens with these little moments, these little surrenders. Now in verse 11, we see the main consequence of uh, being a sluggard, of being lazy, is poverty. Now with that, I think we need to pause for a minute. I think we need to say something and clear something up. Certainly this passage is making a link between poverty and laziness. And certainly in general, if you are lazy, unless someone constantly bails you out, it will lead to poverty. However, though, this passage in the Bible overall does not teach that all poor people are lazy. In both the Bible and in our current world, some of the hardest working people are in fact poor. I mean, I come from a very blue collar background and I have family and I have friends who work very labor intensive jobs. And some of them are lower middle class or what you might define as poor, but they are anything but lazy. I mean, whether we want to admit it or not, poverty is complex. And that is certainly true here in America. And so because of that, I think we just need to be careful here that when we read something like this and, and other passages like it, that we understand that laziness can and often does lead to poverty, but that does not mean that all poor people are lazy. Okay, so we've looked at and we've defined the sluggard, the negative example in the passage, but let's now look at the end, the positive example, the one that you and I are to go and to observe. Look again in verse six. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores up provisions in the summer and it gathers food at harvest. What we see here in contrast to the sluggard, the ant teaches us three really important lessons. The first thing the ant teaches us is that it is a self-starter. Ants have an inner drive. They don't need to be poked and prodded along. No, they know what needs to be done and they just get after it. A second lesson we learn though from the ant is that they are extremely hardworking. I mean, I know that uh, for most of you know this, but ants are absurdly strong. Let me show you a couple pictures of, of ants carrying really heavy things. Here's an ant carrying a strawberry. Now I'm like 90% sure this is not Photoshopped. Uh, I found it in a, an article in a British uh, uh, online newspaper. And this photo was taken by a photographer in Indonesia. But I, again, I, so I, I'm again, 90% sure it's not Photoshopped, but that is incredible. Um, let me show you another one that was from a BBC article. Um, apparently this, it's a little hard to see, but it's this weight. And apparently the weight is 100 times uh, the, the body weight of the ant. And so again, the point here is that ants are incredibly hardworking. I mean, how many of you ever uh, had issues with them in your house and you sort of put your hand in front to block them and they just find a way, they go up, they go over, they go around, they just don't quit. A third lesson we see here from the ants is that they plan for the future. Again, it says there that they gather food in the summer and at harvest time. And for any of you who have had problems with ants in your house, you'll have no doubt seen them uh, working hard all summer long, carrying off little bits of food from underneath your toddler's high chair. And apparently they take it and they leave your house and they kick it back to the nest to store for later. Now, as we think about these three lessons, these are all things that you and I should be aiming for in our lives. Being self-motivated, working hard, planning ahead, planning for the future. 
Now, even with that said, I, I don't think that this passage is teaching us that sleep and rest are bad things. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that they are essential. You see, the problem with the sluggard is not that he's sleeping or taking a rest, but it's that he doesn't follow God's design and God's rhythm for these things. You see, God in his wisdom and in his design, he has put in natural seasons of rest. I mean, there's a reason why it gets darker earlier in the winter. It's so that you and I will rest and sleep more. There's a reason why after harvest time, nothing grows, right? It's, it's this natural rhythm and cycle of rest. And not only are there built in seasons of, and rhythms of rest, but God also in his wisdom commands us to take a weekly day, what he calls the Sabbath. Now, I don't have time to get into a whole teaching on the Sabbath and talk about whether or not it's still binding on us as law or anything like that. But let me just share with you that, that recently my family and I started taking an actual 24-hour Sabbath. And yes, it's been difficult to figure it out and, and to know what, what we should do and what we shouldn't do during that time. But as we've done it here, it's been very life-giving. We try to make it fun. We do things that we enjoy as a family, things that are restful, that restore us. Um, for me, being out in nature is huge. I, I sit in a windowless office all day, you know, 40 some hours a week. And so to be able to be out among the trees and out in nature is very life-giving for me. And it's just been this great practice that we've introduced into our weekly rhythm. And far from it being this legalistic thing, it's actually been a real blessing. And so again, I don't think this patch is, is, is anti-rest or anti-sleep. It's just anti-lazy or anti-irresponsible. Okay, so let's go to the last warning here, which is a warning on wickedness. Pick it up in verse 12. A troublemaker and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks maliciously with his eye, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers, who plots evil with deceit in his heart, who always stirs up conflict. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into shedding, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Now in verse 12, we see Solomon start to describe a new type of person someone that he calls a troublemaker and a villain. Um, the ESV translates it and describes the person as worthless and a wicked man. In the Hebrew, the word being used here is literally of Belial. Now in the Bible, Belial always implies wickedness and worthlessness, but not only that, in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul uses this term and this word to talk about say, a name for Satan himself. And so as we look at these verses and the type of person that they are describing, we see here that they are describing essentially the character and the nature of Satan. And therefore, it's describing the character of anyone who is influenced and led by him. And what we see here, Solomon do in verses 12 to 14, is that he's describing these outward manifestations of the body. Things like a corrupt mouth or winking maliciously with the eye or signaling with your feet or motioning with your finger. And I think the point here is that for the wicked person, even their physical body, their body language betrays the, and exposes the wickedness that's inside of them. 
Uh, Commentator Roland Murphy said it like this. He said, the physical appearance is, as it were, a sign language that supposedly betrays the inner person. And according to verse 14, we see that ultimately this comes from a wicked and corrupt heart. And that the wicked person's, their, their goal here is to stir up conflict. However, though, we see in verse 15 that this type of person, they will ultimately not succeed. That in the end, they will be destroyed without remedy or hope. Now in verse 16, Solomon continues to describe this wicked and worthless person. But here he shifts to God's perspective on them. And he actually says that these are behaviors and, and these are types of people that God hates. Now, I know we often talk about God being a God of love, and that's absolutely right. He is a God of love. But did you also know that there's some things that God hates? Things that are an abomination to him. And what we see here in this list is that God hates haughty or proud eyes. He hates a lying tongue and those who pour out lies. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. He hates hearts that devise wicked plans and wicked schemes. And lastly, we see here that God hates those who stir up conflict in a community. Now with this list, we see Solomon here uh, use a very specific literary device in order to emphasize and to teach us something. And this type of literary device is something that he'll do later on in Proverbs as well. And the point of it, the point of saying there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him is twofold. One is to show that this list is specific but not exhaustive. In other words, these are uh, actual things that the Lord hates, but these are not the only things that the Lord hates. The other thing that this type of literary device does is that it's meant to bring attention to the last thing in the list. And so what we see here, the, the last thing is a person who stirs up conflict in a community, or as the ESV says, one who sows discord among brothers. You see, really, when you look at this whole section, this is the main point and the main emphasis of the text. Both Satan and those who are under his power love disunity and stirring up conflict, whereas the Lord hates disunity. He hates when there's conflict among believers. We looked at this a couple months ago, Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. And this is, again, we talked about this in that series on the church this is maybe one of Satan's number one strategies against the church to stir up conflict, to create disunity. And what we see here in our passage is that it is wicked and that God hates it. And so because of that, you and I must ask ourselves, am I participating in this kind of behavior? Am I the type of person who stirs up conflict in a community? Now look, at some level, we all fall in this from time to time. But I think what this passage is getting at and what it's condemning and warning is someone who does this habitually, who does it without repentance or a desire to change. In other words, it's describing someone who really enjoys creating conflict and disunity in a group. And in doing that, this person is aligning themselves with Satan and with his plans and with his desires. And in turn, they are setting themselves up against God, which is always unwise, which is always dangerous. Now, I don't know about you. I, I walk through these three different warnings in these different areas, and I'm tempted to feel a little overwhelmed. What I mean is, is that as I think about my own life, 
I can see how I've been unwise and how I've even sinned in some of these areas. I mean, even just a couple days ago in one of our elders meetings, we were having a very passionate discussion about a theological topic. And because of that, I got pretty worked up. And at some level, I think that I was guilty of stirring up conflict in that meeting. I wouldn't say that lying is something I'm particularly tempted by, but certainly I have been guilty of lying and being a false witness. As well, I, I know at times I struggle with having haughty or proud eyes. And even though I can't think, I can, all, I can think of a lot of people who I would perceive as being a lot lazier than myself, I know that if I'm being honest, I too struggle with selective laziness. And so I don't know about you, I don't know where you're at, I don't know how this is hitting you today, but for me, as I went through it this week, I, again, there was a feeling of, oh shoot, this is me. Like I, I can be this person that's being described here. And so if that's you, let me share with you a couple verses that I've had to remind myself of this week. One verse that's really, really interesting when we consider it in light of Proverbs 6 is Job 17.3. In Job 17.3, Job prays and he says, Give me, O God, the pledge you demand. Who else will put up security for me? Now in Proverbs 6, we're told to not put up security or make a pledge for someone in order to cover their debts. And yet here, Job is asking God to do that for him. You see, Job understands that there is only one person, one being who is able to cover our debt of sin, the debt that we owe God, and that is God himself. You see, in Jesus Christ and in his death and in his resurrection, God did this very thing. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, that Jesus became the guarantor of a better covenant. That word guarantor is the same idea of becoming security, of becoming surety for someone else. Not only that though, but Colossians 2 and verse 13, it says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see again, Jesus at the cost of his life, he put up security on our debt of sin. And when we defaulted on that debt, when we, were, when we failed to pay it, Jesus came through and at the cross, he paid it all. Second Corinthians 8 and 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is the gospel. This is the good news that you and I have been invited into and been invited to believe and to receive. And so I'm gonna invite Nick and Kim up and they're gonna uh, sing one last song here where we're gonna celebrate together. Now I would just encourage you to believe this, to believe what you're singing, to just go for it, to, 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 to declare that we have won, that Jesus has won a victory for us through the cross. But let me close us in prayer. Father, thank you that as we come to your word, Lord, That, Lord, it brings conviction of sin. But, Lord, it doesn't just destroy us, Lord. It, it brings conviction, but it brings hope. 
Thank you, Jesus, that on the cross, you paid our debt of sin. Lord, you became security and surety for us. Lord, the debt was more than we could pay. A million lifetimes, we would never be able to pay it. But Lord, when you shed your blood on the cross, Lord, you paid for that sin. And so thank you, Lord. Help us to believe that today. Help us to worship you as we sing the good news. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
joining us this morning. We hope and trust that during this time you were able to meet with the Lord, that he was speaking to you. Um, there'll be members of our, I'll, I'll be down here. I invite any of the other pastors or prayer team members down here. Um, if you have anything going on you would like prayer for, uh, again, it's, we're, didn't do this for a long time, but we think we're finally able to figure out how to social distance and wear masks and pray for each other. And we just know how important prayer is. And many of you are hurting. You have things going on in your lives. And so please, Come forward or turn to a life group leader or a friend and, and, and ask for prayer. Um, also, I just want to remind you, tomorrow night uh, from 8 to 9, we have that uh, equip on emotional health. It'll be a Zoom call. Uh, and so if you signed up, look, look for that email tomorrow for the link to, to log on. Um, it's not too late. If you would like to sign up for this, again, we'll have two uh, of our counselors here at Limworth leading us in a time of talking about emotional health. You write on your connect card right now, like grab one, fill it out, drop it in the offering box, and we'll make sure you get the email tomorrow. All right, let's close here now with a final blessing. It comes out of 1 Thessalonians 5. May the God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Amen. Go in peace. I'm